Before we get to the text, which is the sixth chapter of John, I want to just you know, preface what I want to say with a few verses of Scripture that I want you to look, look at with me. I want you to turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and I want us to look at verse 37. Do you have any rivers that seem uncrossable? Do you have any mountains that you can't tunnel through? Are there any impossible situations in your life that just seem insurmountable problems or, or impossible situations? We're going to deal tonight with um, or talk about how to deal with the impossible situations. And the first chapter of Luke, uh, verse 37, says, For nothing will be impossible with God. For nothing will be impossible with God. I wonder how much we really believe that and how much we really practice that in life. And that verse 37 is directly connected with verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? You know that story. And the angel said, for nothing will be impossible with God. It's not even impossible with God that a virgin conceive and bear a child. Now would you flip over to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and I want us to read verse 27 of the 18th chapter. Verse 27. Let me set the context. This is the, the story of the rich young ruler, the man Jesus loved, and you know that he was invited to follow Christ, and um, he didn't because he was rich. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he told them this story, he, he gave this analogy that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And verse 26, And they who heard it said, Then who can be saved? And Jesus said, The things impossible with men are possible with God. The things impossible with men are possible with God. And what we want to, we, we hope to see in the church, I think, is a church that is absolutely convinced that the impossible is possible and are willing to launch out on the kind of faith that sees the impossible made possible. Now I want you to flip over to the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah. That's over in the Old Testament, and it's kind of about halfway. If you want to start with uh, Psalms and move to the right, you'll go to Proverbs. Psalms is halfway, and so you kind of work from the right. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, those prophets. And you come to the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah. And I want us to begin reading at verse 17. I'm reading from the New American Standard, of course. Just kind of setting 
the tone for the, for the sermon itself. Are you, are you there yet? I'll wait just a minute. What a, what, a ver, what a passage this is. This will preach, look at this. Ah, Lord, God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy power and by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Now, some of you have these things on your... On your uh, 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 ice bar refrigerator uh, you know like uh, we got one uh, somebody gave us for Christmas this hog and it says diet darn it on there uh, I think they were trying to tell me something uh, but I have seen this little statement on a refrigerator that you know where people open the door every day and see it nothing is too difficult for thee and of course, that reference is to God. Now jump down, skip down to verse 22. I want to show you something. Now he's talking about the deliverance of the Israelis from bondage and talking, telling about how it's done. And verse 22, it says, And gavest them this land which thou didst swear to their forefathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now if you just... Fill in the blank there. Nothing is too difficult for thee, talking about God, and he gave you, and fill in the blank. Now it might be a good thing, and sometime I do this, and I may want to do this somewhat Wednesday night, I hope you can come to the, uh, to the uh, watch night, for us to just dream some dreams as a church. I mean some big dreams. What we want, you know, long-range planning committee, we're putting a lot of this stuff together. What we want to see accomplished, what our dreams are for the First Baptist Church of Durant, for this whole part of the country, and draw the line and say, God is going to give us this, for nothing is too difficult for Him. Wouldn't that be exciting? Now would you flip back over to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, and we'll get down to the, to the text. There are a lot of things that, as far as you and I are concerned, may be impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. That's the kind of God we have. Do you believe that? Shake your head like this, and that, that means you do. Now begin reading with me in verse 1, and I'm just going to read through verse 5 at first. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And what that's there, what he put that, puts that there for, is to, is to emphasize the, the enormity of that crowd. People were on the road to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, and the, and the roads were swelled with the people. And that's an indication there, verse 4 there, that 
a part of this humongous crowd that was gathering were people, pilgrims, on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now Jesus is getting ready to perform this miracle, this impossible thing. There's some uniqueness about this miracle. There's several things that are unique about it. Would you note these down first? It's the only miracle that is found in all four of the Gospels. That's significant because what Jesus is going to do here is of significant import. It's the only miracle found in all four Gospels. The second thing about its uniqueness is that it's the only time or only miracle where Jesus asks someone else for advice. He turned to ask, what are we going to do? That's the only time Jesus ever did that. The third thing about the, this miracle which made it unique is this, that it is the only miracle that Jesus performed before a multitude. Now they wanted him to perform miracles in the multitudes, but he did not. And if you'll search the scripture, most of the time Jesus performed miracles in private. Have you noticed that? And told the people involved in the miracle, now you go and don't tell anybody about this. For the miracle was not performed for the miracle's sake or for the multitude's sake. So it was the only miracle really ever performed by such a vast multitude. Let me kind of set the stage for you. You're familiar as I am with it, I'm sure. It says, after these things, what, are they, what is he referring to, these things? Well, if you'll look back in the fifth chapter of John, you'll see that it follows on the heels of the healing of the man at the pool. And the result of that healing was that the Jews encountered Jesus and began to debate with him concerning his authority as the Son of God. And, all, and the fifth chapter is filled with teachings that Jesus gave to these Jews who encountered him and challenged his authority. When you look at the other references to this miracle in the other Gospels, you'll find something that John doesn't really note is that it happens just after these disciples have returned from the first time they were sent out by Jesus. They were returning from that mission He had sent them upon, and now they were coming back, and Jesus had just finished this teaching time, and it was a time to get apart with His disciples alone with them for some R&R, for some rest. But the popularity of Jesus was gaining such momentum that the crowd wouldn't leave him alone. He got in a boat and crossed the Sea of Galilee, but they went around. It, must, it was about two miles up around the Sea of Galilee and came to where he was, sitting on that mountain. And when Jesus saw this great multitude of people, he was moved with mercy and compassion because he knew they were hungry. 
But where are you going to feed this multitude? How are you going to feed them? Where are you going to get the food for them? So he turns to Philip and asks. It's a logical thing. It's, uh, there's a logical reason for him asking Philip, where are we going to get food for these people? Because Philip was from that part of the country. And he, if anybody would know where to get food, he would be the one who would know. But that wasn't really the reason he asked Philip the question. Now watch with me right carefully. Have you ever wondered why Jesus asked Philip this? Why didn't he ask Judas? But Judas is the treasurer. He has the money bag. He has the, 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 uh, the money they carried. And if, if there was someone who would know how much money they had, it would certainly be Judas, not Philip. So why did he ask Philip the question? Well, the answer is found in the sixth verse. Look. And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. So that he asked Philip the question because he was testing the depth of Philip's faith. Now watch this. A lot of times impossible situations are placed in our life, are found in our life, are brought in our life by God Himself to test the depth of our faith. Sometimes the impossible is brought into life to test the faith of man, to see where he's going to turn, to see the kind or caliber or quality of his faith. Now I want you to notice something about Philip. And so if you'll turn over to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, we're going to get some kind of a, an insight into the character of this man. And Jesus has made that marvelous statement, you know, um, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God and I go to prepare a place for you. Thomas the doubter said, how can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. And verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? Watch this. Philip was the kind of person who had to have an answer he could see before he believed. He had a slide rule for a mind. It wasn't enough for him that God said it. It wasn't enough for him that Jesus had proclaimed it. He, had to, he wanted to see the evidence for himself with his own eyes. He had to have some proof in his hands he could touch with his senses before he would believe it. He wouldn't just accept it even if God said it. Does that sound like anybody you know? Is it enough that God has promised it or do you have to see it to believe it? Now look at the answer, Philip. Verse 7. 200, Philip answered him, 
200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Now, now, now look at that. Jesus didn't ask him, uh, how much money do we have? He said, where are we going to get bread for them? He asked a where question, and Philip really didn't even answer the question. As a matter of fact, the answer of Philip was, in essence, doesn't make any difference if there is bread around the corner, we don't have enough money to pay for it anyway. Now, a denarii, 200 denarii, look at the, look what that suggests. A man working for a day, a day's wage, was usually 17 denarii. And you multiply that by 200, and it says that it would take a man working two-thirds of a year to earn enough money to buy just enough for everybody to have a little bit. Now Philip's answer answers the question not in faith but with a description of the need. And if you look at that thing just a little bit and watch it there and stare at it some, it, it says this, that Philip's answer to Jesus was in essence well, we'd have to work for it and it would take us two-thirds of a year to get it done. For his answer concerning the problem has to do with man's effort. You see that? And his answer to Jesus' question has to do with just the situation and the size of the problem. Now, when the impossible situation encounters us or confronts us, how do we first respond to it? Do we respond to it by just looking at the size of the situation and the problem? And do we think immediately, what can I do about it? That's Philip. And then there comes Andrew, steps up, verses 8 and 9. Look at that. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? You, you, you almost wanted to cheer him for a minute because it looks like he's got a solution. Five barley loaves and two small fishes. Then he just kind of comes back and says, uh, but what are they against the odds? What impresses you the most, listen to me, what impresses you the most, the God who is able to do the impossible or the size of the impossible? What do you consider more than anything else, the odds that are against you or the God who is with you? Here's a church considering, um, considering new buildings. Let's just take that for a hypothetical illustration. You know what the first thing we do is? We see if how much we, we, we sit down and we, we calculate how much money we have, how much money we can raise, and how much money we can borrow. And the first question we ask is, can we afford it? Isn't that right? I heard Ron Lewis say one time that he was going to make a shift. He's the 
president of the Church Growth Foundation, uh, this group that's kind of helping us, he said he decided that he was going to try to make a move, a transition from Nashville to Dallas, move his office. And he went into this bank to see if he could, you know, get some money to move to Dallas and, and make the transition. And you know what? The first thing they asked, what's your collateral? What kind of collateral do you have? If you've got the collateral, you can borrow the money. I found that, you know, I mean, I'm not smart, but I found that if you've got... Uh, $10,000 in CDs in a bank, they're going to loan you $10,000 if you got that much collateral, if you got, the, if you got that which backs it up. And most of the things we do in the church and in our own individual Christian life is done on the basis of if we have enough resources to back it up. Isn't that about right? If I've got enough talent to do this, I'll do it. If I have enough money to do this, if I have enough money to tithe, I'll tithe. If we've got the backing, the collateral, the resources, we'll try something. That's, that's Andrew's kind of a concept. And you know what God says to us? He says, I want you to do that, and the only collateral you need is your faith. Now there's some lessons to be learned from this parable. Let me just read on the, through it and then let me give you lessons. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there, were, there was much gr grass in the place. So the men sat down in number, about 5,000. Jesus therefore, notice this, He sat them down because this miracle is going to be something they receive from Him. Oh, look at that. He set them down because what's about to accomplish is going to be accomplished in man's rest. Oh, hear me now. God wants to do so much in our life if we'll just sit down and let Him do it. Jesus therefore took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. Now Philip said, uh, we don't have enough just to, you know, if we had all of this money for two and a half, two thirds of a year of wage, we could just feed a little. He gave them all they wanted. Look at that. There's a difference between what man can do and what God can do. What man does is a little. What God does is all that we want. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves. My friend of mine said, These twelve baskets, one for each disciple, that was the interest that Jesus paid on the, on the money, on the loaves he borrowed from the little boy. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, let's get down to the application, then we're through. What do you do with impossible situations? What do you do with them? When you come up against something like this, what's the answer to it? Number one, when you face an impossibility, 
When you face an impossibility, leave it in the hands of a specialist. Let's just suppose tonight that your watch broke and you have a pretty expensive watch and you've pretty, you, you've, you're dependent upon it and your watch broke, what would be the first thing you'd do? Would you take the back of that thing off and start to work on it? Not on your life. The first thing you'd do was take it to a specialist. Now some of you may have a hobby of working on watches. But most of us would take that watch first thing tomorrow to a specialist in watches. And we'll just kind of begin reading at verse 15. And um, this is the, comes on the heels of the transfiguration. And it says, And immediately when the entire crowd saw them, they were amazed and began running up to, to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. He has a, a seizure. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't do it. I told them, perform this miracle, and they couldn't do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling about, foaming at the mouth. And he asked the father, how long has this happened to him? Been happening to him, he said, from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Now listen to this statement. This is the father speaking to Jesus. But if you can do anything, look at that. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now you've got to have a New American Standard to catch this next statement, this next verse, and it's dynamite. And Jesus said to him, if you can, or if, if you can, in a kind of an incredulous way, in other words, Jesus is kind of coming by, you mean to say, you're saying to me, if I can, as though that's a stupid thing to say, of course I can. And then he says, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, help thou my unbelief. And he, he healed him. Now notice the last phrase, verse 29, and the disciples began questioning privately, why is it that we could not cast it out? Oh, get this, folks. Wake up and get this. And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And I believe the King James says, This comes not but by prayer and fasting. So point two is, 
when you encounter the impossible situation, you've got to remember that miracles only are wrought to those people who live a prayerful and disciplined life. I must say that again. The only way, the only time that God works miracles in lives doing the impossible is the result of the praying and the fasting of His people. Now, if you want a church where the impossible is made possible, you and I are going to have to pay a price for that to happen. That'll only happen when the church comes to its knees and when the church begins to live the disciplined life. And when that disciplined life begins to, 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 to come about, and when we begin to be people of prayer, we're going to begin to see the impossible made possible. Um, this does not come but by prayer and fasting. That, that old reprobate that's outside of God's grace and lost for years will not be saved until the church prays and fasts. And these insurmountable barriers and problems that exist in the world will not be overcome until God's people begin to be serious about prayer and about discipline. There is a price to be paid before the impossible is made possible. Do you have any impossible situations in your life? Then go to God in prayer. Then begin to discipline your lifestyle so that God can work the divine work in you. Third application. Refuse to worry about the impossible situation. Refuse to worry about it. Stand against it. I'm going to refuse to worry about it. I've turned this over to God, and I'm going to let Him do the work. I'm standing against worry. There's a multitude to feed. God will have to do it. There's a need to be accomplished in the church. God's going to have to do it. I can't worry about it. I'm not going to take that ride wild ride down Ulcer Gulch any longer. I'm going to turn it over to God. This is His church. This is His work. That's the Spirit. I've got a problem in my life. I've got a burden in my life. I'm encountering an impossible situation in my marriage. Is that what you're saying? Don't go and say, I said that. I'm, I'm just... Uh, that's rhetorical. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> My wife might have, but I'm turning it over to God and I'm going to stand against worry. It's up to Him. Ah, oh, what a freedom that is. What deliverance that is. Number, th number three or four, whatever it is. Three or four. I must be sure that what I have 
has been placed in God's hands. I've got to be sure that what I have has been placed in God's hands. Now, I want you to know that the key to this miracle is not that the fish and the loaves were placed in Jesus' hands. Now, that's big. That's mighty big. That's, a, that's at the heart of it, but it's not the main thing. The main thing is that the situation, impossible, was placed in His hands. Now, it is important that you and I are sure that all we have, all that's ours, is placed in His hands, whether it's one talent or five. But the situation has to be placed in His hands also. And then finally, this is a good word. God needs an impossible situation in order to perform a miracle. He's got to have an impossible situation in order to perform a miracle. It seems to me that the greatest day that a Christian ever encounters is the day he encounters an impossible situation. For that is the day God has opportunity to perform the miracle. And so Abraham and Sarai were promised a child but that child was not conceived until it was humanly impossible for it to happen. And I'm convinced that sometimes God delays answering our prayers until the situation gets completely out of the realm of human possibility. For God needs the impossible to do a miracle. And God needs a miracle to get glory. I mean, if we were able to do it ourselves, He couldn't get the glory for it, right? One of these days, your pastor is going to stand here, and I'm praying about it now, and I'm going to challenge this church to do something this church is not able to do. And I'm going to challenge you with me to climb way out there and watch God do the impossible in our midst. And when that happens... First Baptist Church in Durant will be recognized as the place where God is doing the impossible. And that'll be a good day. That, that, in fact, that'll be a great day. And somebody said this, and I'll read this and then I'm through. 
this. Let me just read this. Now the Christian doctrine of God declares that He sitteth at the center of the universe. That is the Christian doctrine of God. He rules eternity with His presence. No argument there. All laws are but His thoughts, the law of gravity, whatever, are but His thoughts. And He is able to call into operation force against force, law against law. Do you believe that? I'm so sorry. We therefore believe it is possible for His children to go to Him and ask of Him and receive from Him things they cannot obtain in any other way. Things absolutely impossible to men within the realm of the laws they know may become possible to them if they can gain His ear and touch His heart and find the answer of His overruling power. Prayer and fasting. But notice this dynamite statement. Once you deny that God can answer prayer, He is degraded into a being less than His universe, a prisoner in the heart of His own creation. Amen and amen. You'll bow with me and we'll pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Almighty God, you are the creator of the universe. You did it with your strong arm, arm outstretched. At the declaration of your word, all things that are, you created. You are the mighty God who sits at the center of this universe and rules it and controls it. And we believe, Father, that as your children, we have access to the power that brings the impossible within the realm of the possible. And I pray for a believing heart and a believing life and a believing church that can claim from Thee miracles so that we can see that which man can never do, done. This is our prayer. Bring us to the place of faith, the place of claiming, of trusting, Help us, Father, to come to the place where we are absolutely dependent upon the God who never fails. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.